Welcome to another episode of Energy Talks. I'm journalist Markham Hislop. This podcast is all about interesting conversations with energy and climate experts from around the world. And don't forget to follow us on social media, on Twitter, at E-N-E-R-G-I Media, and my personal handle, at PoliticalHam, on Facebook, facebook.com slash energymedia. Energy.media is our website, where you'll find Markham and Energy columns, news stories and op-eds, and the Energy Student Resources Portal, a wiki-style collection of our work that's free for high school teachers and university professors to use in their classrooms. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. In this episode, I'm going to be talking to Jonah Messenger, an energy analyst with the Breakthrough Institute and co-author of Advancing Nuclear Energy, Evaluating Deployment, Investment, and Impact in America's Clean Energy Future. So welcome to the interview, Jonah. Yeah, thanks for having me so much, Mark. I appreciate it. Now, we're going to get into some of the details of your study in just a moment, but uh, there, the energy media community, I think, is pretty much evenly split between pro and anti-nukes. Uh, there's lots of interest in it, and believe me, I get the advocates uh, talking to me on Twitter all the time. But there's also, and a lot of people, you know, uh, experts, some are economists, some are are uh, uh, clean energy experts, uh, academics who are who are very skeptical, and so there's the two biggest concerns which I want to deal with first. Then we'll talk about your study. Is one um, the uh, cost, uh, levelized cost of of energy. So what will a megawatt hour of electricity cost? We've all seen the Lazard estimates, which are you know up around one hundred and fifty dollars. Uh, so, and then the second thing is, where is the technology? I mean, you know, we're hearing about cost overruns on, on nuclear plants where no, I don't think many of us really know what advanced nuclear is and how much different is that from, from, you know, previous iterations of nuclear technology, that, that sort of thing. So we'll deal with those two issues. Then we'll get into your study. So let's start with number one. Uh, what does your, what did your analysis tell you about, you know, the cost of a megawatt of electricity that would be produced with advanced nuclear technology in the United States market? Yeah, so it's a good question. Um, you know, I think in some sense, uh, it's important um, to be humble uh, and sort of say that this is a model. Uh, we're trying to capture um, possible scenarios, but by no means are we declaring that this is necessarily going to be <laughs> uh, what advanced nuclear costs. Um, I think just sort of also definitionally, it's important to talk about what we mean when we say advanced uh, advanced nuclear technologies. Um, and we we tried to capture uh, as many technologies as we could uh, in our modeling, um, but ultimately we we sort of narrowed it down to three types, uh, three broad categories. Uh, so first, uh, light water, uh, small modular nuclear reactors. Um, so these are basically fundamentally the same type of technology. They're using the same coolants. Um, that large conventional nuclear reactors, at least in the U.S., uh, are using. Obviously, in Canada, you, you all are more familiar with the uh, heavy water candy reactors. Um, so that's the first, light water SMRs, as we call them. Um, the second um, is uh, high-temperature gas-cooled reactors. Um, so the, the, these are uh, sort of a unique um, uh, type of reactor. They're using uh, various inert gases uh, as their coolants as opposed to light water. Um, they have some sort of interesting applications in sort of high temperature processes, uh, in particular for industrial industrial applications. Um, 
And then the third category was a, a broader category that captures a, a few a few different types of technologies. We call it, we, we we sort of invented our own name for it. We call it advanced reactors with thermal energy storage. Uh, and so the you know, sort of uniquely defining feature, um, we call it ARTS uh, for short. The uniquely defining feature there is is it's uh, has a thermal energy storage capacity, so it can ramp up and down. And, and so what it's do, important. What what do you mean by thermal energy storage? Yeah, sure. So uh, that can mean a couple different things, but basically, it's you've got like uh, a molten salt, uh, and you can um, transfer the heat from the coolant, uh, which is extracting heat from the actual nuclear reactor and deposit that heat in these molten salts that can get quite hot. Uh, and, and, and for each temperature uh, degree of temperature increase stores a lot of energy. Um, and you make these, you know, you, you have uh, large tanks of thermal uh, energy uh, or, or, or molten salts that can absorb a lot of thermal energy storage. And it allows you to um, store the uh, energy you're, you're extracting from the nuclear reactor and use it at a later time. Um, but but it's, so it's important to recognize that all these three different technologies are going to look very different on the grid. Um, um, but I think sort of for us uh, in our modeling, um, we had we made a, a levelized cost of electricity metric, um, and we modeled it from uh, about 2025 through 2050, uh, and uh, it's in the executive summary of our report. Um, our initial estimates uh, we did a, a generation so electricity generation weighted average levelized cost of electricity, and it starts. Uh, in 2025, it's something like $99 a megawatt hour and goes to $41 a megawatt hour in 2050. Now, I should just clarify, uh, our modeling doesn't suggest that there will be any nu advanced nuclear reactors on the grid in 2025. Um, but if there were, that's sort of roughly, uh, to get a continuous estimate, that's sort of roughly what we think it'll cost uh, coming into the market. And my understanding is that a lot of the cost reductions uh, for advanced nuclear will come with learning by doing. That's exactly right. Um, so, so a, a, a key feature of our of our model uh, is, is that we have uh, we employ learning rates. Um, this is sort of a uniquely defining feature of our study. Uh, many studies sort of look at advanced nuclear, um, and they they sort of make assumptions about what, where where they think the costs will be. Uh, you know, in twenty thirty or twenty forty or twenty fifty. What we try and do is sort of limit the assumptions, and we basically assume what the initial cost will be. So what we call first of a kind or folk uh, capital costs will be. Uh, and then we make, uh, and through an extensive literature review, we compile a bunch of other different types of costs. So operational costs, variable costs, fixed costs, et cetera. Um, and, and then we basically, um, as the model selects advanced nuclear and deploys advanced nuclear, um, as that occurs, the cost will subsequently decline for future deployments. Uh, and we use a, 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 a bounding analysis. So we have an upper and a lower limit for where we think the learning rates might be. So if I understand this correctly, Jonah, uh, you look at the literature for other technology, could be nuclear, uh, and what their how their costs declined over time, uh, depending on the, the learning curve for that particular technology. And then based on that, you make some assumptions about where what is reasonable for advanced nuclear uh, what their learn, what its learning curve could look like out to 2050, how that affects costs, and then you've got an upper boundary and a lower boundary. If I got that correct? Yeah, that's exactly right. We look at uh, the aviation industry, we look at coal power, we look at uh, wind power, and ultimately we decided that a lower bound of five percent learning and an upper bound of twelve percent twelve percent learning makes a lot of sense. And just to give your audience sort of a, a contextualization of what that really means, it means that for every doubling of 
capacity deployed on the grid, uh, the cost will decline, the capital cost will decline by five or 12%. Okay. And let's talk about cost overruns and uh, other technical issues uh, that seem to plague nuclear wherever they go, wherever it is. Uh, why, how do we, how do we wrap our heads around this? Because uh, I know, like in Ontario, we've we've there've been some problems with that. France has had some problems with that. Uh, how I don't know what's the likelihood that advanced nuclear will not be plagued by that same problem? Yeah, I think it's a great I think it's a great question. Um, you know, there's a lot of different takes on this. Obviously, um, I think from our perspective, what what we what we hope will distinguish advanced nuclear uh, from from convention conventional large nuclear reactors. Uh, in terms of the cost overruns, um, we break it down into a few things. Um, so for one, the advanced nuclear reactors tend to be much, much smaller, uh, and that allows you to do a couple things. Um, for one, it allows you to deploy many more units. Uh, and when you're deploying many more units um, and you're doing it in a more manufactured, standardized uh, system, it allows you to get into those learning by doing effects where you get sort of real learning rates and you start to be able to, I mean, think about it. If you do things once, twice, three, four, five, six times, as you repeat these processes in a standardized controlled environment, um, and even if the whole reactor isn't standardized, if it has standardized components and parts, it allows you to sort of get better at it the next time you do it. Uh, and and, and, and in, in this application, that means the cost we hope will go down. Um, and that's what, that's what we see in the literature. Uh, if you look at the aviation industry, if you look at, uh, uh, other modular, I mean, think about solar, obviously that's a, a, a at the high end of, of learning. Um, the other thing that we see is, is that with these smaller projects, they're not sort of these large one-off major construction projects like a, like a gigawatt sized uh, uh, large conventional, conventional light water reactor might be. Uh, and so the shorter construction times allows for far more predictability. Um, a, lot of these, a lot of these advanced nuclear reactors are also far simpler. Um, some of them uh, have uh, uh, far less uh, uh, sort of active components, uh, and that makes for a simpler uh, design and, and construction. Uh, and, and then the other thing is, is I think that advanced nuclear reactors have far more applications. Um, so, so for example, the high temperature gas reactors, those can be used not just for the production of electricity, uh, but they can be used in industrial processes, uh, which could facilitate their sort of uh, entry into the market in other ways. Now, your study uh, looks at deployment from the early 2030s out to 2050 and grows over time, potentially supplying 20 to 48 percent of domestic clean electricity generation by mid-century. Uh, is that, I mean, I guess 20 percent is not unrealistic. What's the, the current percentage of uh, nuclear power in the U.S.? So right now it's just under 20 percent uh, of electricity generation. Okay, so even if you just replaced existing uh, generation, uh, existing nukes with with new nukes, you twenty percent would be a re reasonable number. Yeah. What would you have to do? How much money would you have to spend to get to forty eight percent? Yeah, so the the capital deployment is very interesting. Um, so we so I should just sort of say um, that in our in our, in our model, and we modeled four scenarios, so it was sort of a matrix approach, um, and we we were modulating sort of two main parameters. One with those initial first of a kind reactor costs. And the second was the learning rate. And if you pair that up in sort of a matrix, you have four different scenarios. Um, and so in modeling, in modeling these scenarios, uh, as you mentioned, we model the capital deployed uh, to, to get to these sort of uh, deployment metrics or percentage of electricity generation supplied by advanced nuclear. Um, so it's important to stress that 
this is a range. Uh, you know, we we won't know for sure. Um, but just to give sort of a flavor uh, um, uh, to your audience, um, you know, by 2035, we, we think something in the range of about 200 million, uh, uh, $200 million, or sorry, excuse me, $200 billion in, <laughs> in uh, cumulative uh, capital deployed uh, would be realistic. And then, and then as you get to, after sort of uh, 2050, you're looking more in the range of about a trillion dollars. Now, let's talk about the relationship between advanced nuclear and uh, intermittent renewables, so mainly wind and solar. And in your report, you make the point that the, the advanced nuclear can support intermittent renewables. Now, I understand how that happens would happen, say, with uh, hydro. Uh, because when the wind is blowing and the sun is shining, you can hold back the water, not put as much water through your generators, and then you can run it through uh, later on when the, the wind isn't blowing and the sun isn't shining. But my understanding is that once you get a, a nuclear plant up and running, it really should just stay at that whatever the optimal uh, you know, uh, generation rate is, and and should you shouldn't run it like a hydro dam in this in this hypothetical situation. Am I off base here? You know, in, in general, that's normally sort of the uh, the thesis with conventional nuclear. Um, I would sort of say there's there's sort of two answers uh, to your question. Um, the first is that we find that advanced nuclear reactors could potentially be ramping far easier and far quicker uh, in throttling their output. Uh, to sort of match uh, uh, renewable energy uh, on the grid, and that's important because you know, um, regardless of where you fall on this uh, on this sort of discussion, uh, you know, uh, uh, renewable energy, solar and wind power are are zero marginal cost resources. So in a competitive electricity market, um, they will sort of be the first first in, if you will, on uh, on the market. Um, they have the lowest marginal cost, um, and so it's important for next generation nuclear to be able to um, uh, do well in a market where you're competing with lots of zero marginal cost generation. And so being able to ramp up quickly uh, is quite important and also having a lower minimum load requirement, uh, which tends to be the case with these advanced nuclear reactors. All of that's quite important and in, in, in something we see. Uh, and then the second thing I'll say is just sort of uh, these advanced reactors with thermal energy storage, um, uh, they can really play well with renewables. Um, and that's because they can uh, you know, be running, uh, their capacity factors can be quite high. They can be running uh, quite often, um, sort of approaching uh, the maximum possible runtime, um, um, but still be storing uh, that that uh, nuclear energy output um, that's been deposited in these sort of thermal energy storage tanks that can be extracted for power generation uh, several hours, uh, uh, several hours later after the sun goes down or or the wind stops blowing. So if I understand this correctly, there are two ways in which advanced nukes play well with, with intermittent renewables. One is the plant can ramp up and down, which the older technologies can't do. And secondly, they're all thermal storage, so that even if they didn't ramp up and down, if they just stayed ramped up, you still can add to more and more storage, which then gives you the opportunity to to use that that energy uh, when it's convenient, when it's economic, and and so on. Have I got that right? Yeah, that's pretty much right. I mean, I should mention that large conventional nuclear power plants can also ramp up and down. It, it, it's economically inefficient for them to do so, but they certainly can. Um, but some of these some of these advanced reactors can ramp really quite quickly. Uh, and and exactly right, the, uh, those reactors with thermal energy storage can be running uh, pretty pretty much all the time. Uh, and still play well with uh, with uh, zero marginal cost solar and wind power. 
Now, here's a, an application where I actually think that SMRs in particular might have a really big role to play. And I'm thinking specifically of the oil sands in northern Alberta. And I can already hear the heads exploding in some of, of some of our, our listeners because they're not big fans of the oil sands. And I would add the caveat that that would be an application only if the oil sands would make one, an application that makes sense only if the oil sands is, is transitioned over from producing feedstock for fuels, for refineries, to feedstock for material manufacturing like carbon fiber. Sorry. So that with that caveat, the idea of provide of, of producing uh, quantity great quantities of cost-effective industrial heat in an application like that or others seems to be a big advantage of advanced nukes. Yeah, I, I think that's right in general, um, in, in particular for actually for um, high temperature gas cooled reactors or HTGRs as we call them um, in, in the industry. Um, you know, I mean, I think that that's an important caveat, right? That that uh, w what are those uh, hydrocarbons being used for? Um, but but sure, I mean, I, I think like broadly speaking, um, the, the, these reactors will be deployed in a number of uh, sort of more remote locations. Um, and, and that's just sort of gonna be a function of market demand. Um, I think one thing that comes to mind for me, though, um, in, is the sort of the ability to transition a lot of fossil infrastructure, fossil fuel infrastructure, uh, hopefully to advanced nuclear reactors. Uh, and that's a really exciting development. And, and our modeling shows that that is a huge opportunity. Um, and, and so, I mean, that's that's true for fossil uh, or, or excuse me, for coal power, natural gas power plants. We see quite a bit of transition uh, uh, of fossil fuel power plants. Uh, uh, to, to advanced nuclear reactors, and it makes for a quite easy transition um, because a lot of that a lot of that workforce can be pretty easily transitioned uh, to advanced nuclear reactors, uh, and all that all that infrastructure and those permits uh, and interconnections are, are all, all all existing. Uh, so it makes for an easy transition. Now here's an application where I have to confess to being a little skeptical, and that is hydrogen production. And the reason for that is right now with a steam methane reformer and natural gas, you can make kilo, uh, hydrogen for a couple bucks a, a kilogram, buck 50 a kilogram. It's pretty competitive. For To do that with a, uh, an advanced nuke would mean, you'd, I mean, you'd have to produce uh, electricity at like a cent a kilowatt, cent and a half a kilowatt. And it doesn't sound like that's going to be possible so explain how advanced nuke might, you know, support the development of a hydrogen industry. Yeah, I mean, look, I think some of the, some of this is just like, you know, it's important to recognize that in our model, we're assuming a carbon constrained, uh, carbon constrained world, right? So, you know, are we going to beat natural gas with with advanced nuclear? I, I don't, I maybe not on on cost alone, um, but you know, so in some sense, this is this is a function I think of of. Living in a carbon constrained world, and, and part of the part of the um, uh, results of that is is that uh, you know um, if we want to use hydrogen uh, and we want to make it cleanly, um, there might be some added costs, at least in the beginning. You know, I mean, I I don't know that it isn't uh, out of the realm of possibility that natural gas prices um, sort of rise quite a bit, uh, and, and and you know at both sort of uh, um, uh, photovoltaic driven uh, elect electrolysis. Um, or 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 advanced nuclear uh, hydrogen production don't don't become much more competitive. I mean, we take a very conservative uh, outlook on natural gas prices, but 
But right now, I mean, natural gas prices are going through the roof and, and there's a lot of volatility there in prices that you don't see uh, in, in hydrogen production from advanced nuclear. Right. And there, there's another wrinkle to this, and that is carbon pricing, because you don't have in most markets in, in the United States, you don't have a carbon price, but you certainly do have a carbon price in Canada. You have both a consumer carbon price and an industrial emitter carbon price. And and uh, I know you didn't do the numbers, uh, and I have no idea just off the top of my head what Canada's carbon pricing, you know, in 20, well, it's going to be $170 a metric ton in, in 2030. No idea how that would affect your numbers, but maybe that would tilted in uh, in, f in favor of advanced nuclear when it comes to making hydrogen or just in general, you know, it, it might uh, affect the economics. Um, the next thing, I want to finish up our conversation, uh, Jonah, with some of the opportunities for public policy support. Uh, you've got a list of them here. And the first one I have to confess is, that caught my eye was the federal loans loan guarantees, because of course you're talking about the Department of Energy uh, loan guarantee program that Jigger Shaw uh, runs. And that's got a lot. I mean, he's he's attracted a lot of attention to, to what is really a rather prosaic kind of program. But, you know, I mean, he's well known in the community and he, he used to be part of the Energy Gang podcast, which is where I know him from. And uh, so tell me, you know, federal loan guarantees, how, you know, why should the, the those be provided to support advanced nuclear? Yeah. Um, yeah. I think we all, all know Jigger from the uh... The Energy Gang podcast, um, uh, you know. So I, I think I think on the policy front, um, look, I think our modeling is pretty clear. Uh, if we if we can uh, sort of provide a pathway uh, to commercialization, uh, there is a huge demand, and it's fairly inelastic to a bunch of the different parameters that we modeled uh, for advanced nuclear uh, on a clean electricity grid. Um, and so I think you know uh, from a from a from a federal government's perspective, uh, I think. Sort of de-risking a lot of the early deployments makes a lot of sense. Um, and 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 you know, like uh, Holtec uh, actually just recently uh, made an application and, and is sort of progressing in that process uh, to build some of their uh, SMR 160s. Um, so we're already starting to see this process happen. Um, but I think the federal loan guarantees program, the loan programs office that Jigger is heading up, they have a tremendous opportunity um, to really do a lot of cost sharing provide loan guarantees, uh, and really de-risk a lot of these projects. And importantly, and this is crucial, as they're doing this, and Jigger's doing a really good job of this, they're bringing along uh, the investment community. Uh, so they're doing this right next, uh, you know, in lockstep with, uh, with the banks. And, and from the banking community's perspective, um, uh, my sense is, is, is that they're looking at this and saying, well, the loan program office is sort of doing all of our due diligence. Um, they're they're taking the risk of being sort of the ma first major funders uh, for deployment, uh, and so if if they do it and and, and uh, these projects um, sort of satisfy all of their requirements, and in many ways the loan programs office is a very um, a very intensive application process, and in some ways they're actually far more they require and demand far more of their applicants than perhaps even a commercial bank would, um, but it's just about being the first or second third deployment. Uh, that's really important for the federal government to step in. Uh, I, I mean, you know, we're all familiar with uh, Mariana Moscato, uh, you know, her argument that of the entrepreneurial state, and she uses the example of the American government, and I think uh, the Department of Energy, of de-risking those, you know, new technologies so that the private sector can then pick it up after the, the valley of death, 
you know, part of the process and then go on and, and commercialize that technology and make it and make it profitable. And I, I'm not sure, quite sure that argument flies in Canada as much as it's not as well accepted as it is in the U.S. But nevertheless, we are talking about the U.S. context. So fair enough. So let's talk about uh, another policy uh, instrument, uh, environmental impact prequalification and feasibility studies, which I would then also lump in with regulatory licensing, licensing, modernization and fee reform. And and I know there are some listeners sitting there going, when he's when Jonah says that I we we worry that he means making regulations more uh, lax, relaxing leg, uh, regulations uh, on an industry that some people are rather frightened of. Yeah, no, not at all. I mean, it's important. To, it's important to understand that um, uh, you know everybody on everybody both in the industry and out of the industry is focused on sort of making sure that. That, uh, that nuclear energy is as safe as possible. And it's important to recognize that nuclear energy is incredibly safe. Um, the historical track record is actually quite good uh, when you compare it, especially to fossil fuels. Um, and a lot of these advanced nuclear reactors are passively safe. So they've got passive cooling. And what I mean when I say passive is, is that they don't have a lot of these sort of active systems that require, say, a pumped uh, system that uh, to, to cycle through coolant. Uh, and, and, and what that allows you to do is have Basically, a a a meltdown safe, a meltdown proof nuclear reactor, um, and and I should also just mention that um, I would I would sort of uh, distinguish some of these different policy requirements when you talk about licensing. Currently, uh, in the United States, in the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, uh, they've basically got two sort of processes to license new reactors. Um, part fifty and part fifty two is what they're called or referred to as. Um, both of those are really uh, sort of uh, geared towards large conventional nuclear reactors, and they're very prescriptive. Um, uh, whereas, uh, you know, if you're an advanced nuclear reactor uh, developer uh, or company, it, it's very, very difficult, very, very time consuming, and quite expensive to go through those processes. Um, and, and that's why, you know, recently the nuclear uh, or, the, or Congress passed the Nuclear Energy Innovation and Modernization Act, uh, in which they sort of asked, or, or not asked, instructed. Uh, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission uh, to change that policy uh, or to change that regulatory policy to make sure that that licensing frameworks are both technology uh, technology inclusive. So it doesn't you don't have to be a large conventional light water nuclear reactor to have a chance at getting through this. Uh, um, they wanted the the risks or the the regulations to be risk informed. So actually, you know, um, instead of instead of uh, basically saying here's our metric for safety. Show us how you meet that metric instead of instead of requiring the prescriptions for how you do that, being very clear about what our safety metrics are and explain to us how you'll meet them. Uh, and then being performance based. I mean, look, like I, I, I don't know that I can stress it enough. Um, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, uh, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission is in, in right now, it, it, you know, they are stunting the deployment of technologies that are ready for commercialization. Um, and, and our modeling shows that a lot of advanced nuclear reactors will be deployed if the licensing process allows it. Um, and, 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 and I think it's as simple as that in some sense. Well, we're going to wrap up our conversation by talking about something that isn't simple, and that is the political uh, the policy and political barriers. Maybe we'll focus on political barriers here because nuclear has a bad rap now. Uh, again, uh, the advocates, the the boosters that uh, I talk to all the time, uh, think that that's bad rap is is uh, undeserved. 
And of course, others uh, would, would argue the, the other side of that. I will say this. I spent a lot of time working on energy and analyzing and talking about energy narratives. And the nuclear industry has done a really bad job of of developing its own energy, its own narrative, and then selling that narrative out to policymakers and and uh, you know voters and 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 so on, and and I think that part of I mean, I'm not still not convinced. I, I don't know how you convince me, Jonah. I still there's part of me that's a little reticent of hopping on your bandwagon because of these unknowns. And I know you explained it, but it's like, I, I feel like I need more because the this is a, a technology that bears more risk, more risk of failure, more risk of high cost, more risk, just more risk. And somehow your explanations are not quite getting there. And I can't be alone. And I'm pretty sure I'm not alone in how I feel about nuclear as a result of this. How do you change the narrative to to persuade people like me maybe the bulk of, of voters, uh, that nuclear is ready for prime time and it's safe and it's economic. Yeah, I mean, I look, I think on some on some level, um, it's important to recognize that you know, we've been working on these technologies uh, since like the 1950s uh, in national laboratories. Um, and I think the track record of, of nuclear is pretty actually, is quite impressive from a safety perspective. Um, you know, if you look at all of the, and it's, a, it's also important to compare Right. It's also important to compare to other technologies. Um, fossil fuels, just from a pollution perspective, um, are incredibly damaging to human health. Um, and, and, and whereas, you know, like large conventional light water reactors have been quite safe, um, and these advanced nuclear reactors are even more safe. Um, they are uh, several of them are um, uh, the way that the fuel is designed uh, in these sort of pellets, uh, and, and the fact that they have passive cooling systems. Um, make them really uh, not susceptible to to meltdown. Um, so I think you know part of this is, you know, perhaps I can't convince everybody, um, but I think I think uh, I think from a historical perspective, uh, and if you actually look at the technology, the safety and tr the safety track record is quite convincing. Um, and look, I think also uh, um, I, I recognize that not everybody is going to be on board, um, and um, you know. Uh, I think that there are some communities, though, that are very excited. Um, I mentioned sort of the fossil to nuclear transition. Um, you know, TerraPower, which has a um, sodium uh, advanced sodium cooled fast reactor, um, their demonstration project is going to be in a, a coal community in Wyoming, uh, and that community uh, is going to replace the uh, Naughton Coal Fire Power Plant Station. That community is incredibly excited to get a, a new plant, uh, a new advanced nuclear reactor uh, when that. When that coal-fired power plant shuts down in 2025, um, so I, you know, I, I think I think it might vary from community to community, um, but broadly speaking, the track record of nuclear is, is quite safe. Well, I'm going to wrap up by saying this, Jonah. Uh, apparently, your your narrative is good enough for the Canadian government because the uh, the Liberal government in Ottawa has said as part of its energy strategy that nuclear will play a role. So we're expecting small modular modular reactors uh, to be deployed in, in probably Ontario, Alberta's really interested, Saskatchewan, New Brunswick. Those are the four. Well, they're non-hydro provinces for starters. So they're looking for uh, low or zero carbon sources of electricity. 
and uh, and those provinces have banded together and the, the, the four of them and they're funding uh, more research into into SMRs. So it seems very likely that Canada is going to probably in the 2030s, maybe as early as 2028 in Ontario, but maybe, you know, sometime early to mid 30s, Canada is going to get some other, you know, other provinces are going to get SMRs as well. And I think that we'll see how this political discussion evolves and the, you know, the industry, can it get a narrative together? Can it convince Canadians? Will, how is this all going to, it seems to me to be very much in flux at the moment, but this, what you've uh, laid out for us here uh, in describing, talking about your study has been very illuminating as very interesting. And I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. Thanks so much. I guess the final thought I, I would leave your audience with is, is, you know, um, climate change is fast approaching. Um, it's already here. Uh, uh, we need to decarbonize as soon as possible. Um, and my my position is sort of fundamentally that we need more clean energy options, not less. Um, and in that sense, nuclear, hydro, uh, other renewables like solar and wind, uh, we need all the tools in the toolbox. Fair enough. I, I will. Uh, that's a, a reasonable argument. Uh, well, thank you very much, Joe. Thanks so much, Mark. I appreciate it. Thank you.